Welcome to the Parenting Well podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising happy, healthy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's fill that well. So today's well source is Rosalind Wiseman. Rosalind is a parent educator who fosters civil dialogues and inspires communities to build strength, courage, and purpose. As the founder of Cultures of Dignity, she works to shift the way that communities think about our physical and emotional well-being by working in close partnership with the experts of these communities. This includes young people, educators, policymakers, and business or political leaders. Her Owning Up curriculum teaches students and educators to take responsibility as bystanders, perpetrators, and victims of unethical behavior. She's the author of several books, including the Queen Bees and Wannabes book, which inspired the movie Mean Girls in 2004. In May of 2022, Rosalind and Shantara McBride will publish Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Brave, Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. So welcome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. So I've followed your work for a very long time, um, all the way way back to when I was in graduate school. And I've always been inspired by the way that you really work to meet young people where they are. You work to include the communities that you're going to be working with so that they're part of the conversation. And given all of this expertise, what do you think is most challenging right now for kids? Well, um, I think there's a number of things. And I think in some ways it depends um, on your age. And, um, and having said that, I also think that you know, young, every young person's experience is in some ways different. And um, so I'll share with you what young people have been saying to me. Um, I think that there is a feeling in general of, for high school people, of, that the schools are making them try to catch up with everything that happened and catch up with all the loss that happened in the last year and a half, um, but without being given the space to be able to do it and the time to be able to transition into managing um, to managing that. And I think that young people are feeling a lot of anxiety and that stems from a lot of different things. Um, I mean, we know that social media and their phones create anxiety for them. But um, I think in addition, and, you know, social media platforms like Instagram and constantly comparing themselves to other people. But I think that um, there's also a really important dynamic uh, for, especially for high school people of needing to, you know, do all the things if they want to keep, you know, keep up with the high expectations that they have for themselves or that um, parents have for them. And at the same time, there's, you know, so there's the feeling of like, you know, the play, the sports, the this, the grades, the that, and this and that. And at the same time, there's really a feeling of that they have to fix the enormous problems that the older generations are leaving for them to clean up. And um, I think the, you know, the, the, the twofold of that, of I have to keep up with the things in my life that sort of in some ways seems superficial to me. And at the same time, I have, I know about how tenuous the world is and I'm supposed to fix that. I think that can be incredibly overwhelming for teenagers um, and understandably so. 
Mm-hmm. I think, you know, for middle school people, and I mean, I think this is true for teenagers as well, but for middle school people, the feeling of needing to maintain friendships and, you know, build back friendships over the last two years, I think is also incredibly important. Yeah, the, the things that have happened have been um, surprising and very tenuous and a lot of fear, of course, anxiety provoking, and then the interruptions with school and sports and friendships and the way they do social time. What do you think has been effective in helping young people cope with that? Well, I think that what is what we know um, is really um, helpful to them is having adults that are calm and consistent in their lives. Mm-hmm. And um, also that they, when they are told about, you know, their emotions and how their emotions work and how to manage their emotions and, um, you know, like things like emotions are real, but they're not permanent. You can change the way you feel, um, which doesn't take away from the feelings you're having right now. It doesn't, you know, make them less valid, but you can change the way that you feel. And I think being able to really listen to them and validate their experiences is also really important. But we really know from from research and also common sense that if you have adults that are calm and consistent around you, um, then that is, it makes you feel that the world is, even when, when things are chaotic around you, that it feels like your world can be calm and consistent. Absolutely. And that's a little bit counter to what you were just sharing in the sense of there's this panic that kids need to catch up. And, you know, how do we get them back into all the things they were doing and make sure that they're performing at the level that they would be, even though they've gone through what really could be considered a trauma for them. When we look at that, what do you think we need to take into consideration? What what are the lessons learned, but what gives them that sense of security and safety? I know you said being with an adult that's really calm, uh, but what other things contribute to really the characteristics of having positive well-being and being able to cope with this feeling of I'm so overwhelmed with what I'm supposed to perform and at the same time trying to take care of myself? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what we call emotional granularity is really important, which is the ability to, to be more specific about um, the experiences and feelings that you're having. Because when kids say, I'm so stressed, there could be a lot of different reasons why they're feeling that way. And really the important first step is for children to understand how they feel for themselves so that they can then articulate it to other people, like their parents or other adults that care about them. And so I really think the most important, you know, sort of stepping, you know, the first foundation is for young people to be able to stop when they feel this feeling of being overwhelmed or they're saying things like, I'm so overwhelmed, or, I'm so stressed, that they really take a pause and get more granular. Say like, what am I, what am I really feeling right now? Why am I really feeling that? Um, even sometimes writing down the words that are more specific about what they're feeling And, you know, the more granular, as soon as you do that for yourself, as soon as you get more granular, that actually means that you're calming yourself down that, you know, by doing that, it's actually this wonderful thing that just by starting the process, you start achieving the goal, which Mm -hmm. is to calm yourself down, become less emotional, less anxious, and frankly, and also your emotional intelligence increases. And really in the moment, what's so important is, you know, sometimes young people have such a hard time for good reasons, explaining how they're feeling to adults. And so the more they can do that, the better they can and explain it to themselves and then explain it to adults, the better you're able to, we're all better to be able to address the problem that they're having. Mm -hmm. And given that 
parent engagement network tends to work with with parents and people that are in kids' lives. What I'm hearing is that there is a role for parents to help their children do that, to ask those questions if they are not yet skilled enough to do that for themselves, to say, oh, talk definitely. to me a little bit more about what that means for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I say like, you know, I say, you know, if a kid's coming to you with issues, you know, with problems or is sort of generally trying, you know, is trying to talk to you, that the most important thing is to say, you know, you know, thank you so much for telling me. And can you give me a little more details so that I don't make assumptions or I have a better understanding of what's happening? Right. Yeah. Get down to what's really going on for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and as it relates to the work you've been doing with cultures of dignity, um, you've been in the schools, you've really been in the thick of some mm -hmm. day -to -day social problems, you know, that are going on in our country and within schools and for our children. Um, what kind of things would you say are really showing up in the schools and have you learned about what kids need right now and how parents and, and caregivers can play a better or bigger, not better, bigger role in that? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, honestly, I really believe the answer to that question is that the adults need to manage themselves better and they need to get along with each other better. And that if you're angry at a school, I mean, there's some things that I really wish parents would not do. Um, I really wish that they would not slam other parents or schools or particular teachers on social media, faith, like Facebook groups. Um, I, I really do not see what I see in those in those groups is, you know, like ostensibly it's like for support for people to share experiences. But what I've seen is that they become places where accusations can be made, where people can be really nasty to where adults, where parents can be nasty to other to children and and also that sometimes the people on the group believe they know sort of everything about a story when they don't and i've also witnessed and had a number of parents tell me which is really upsetting to me is that for some of the parents who are so angry and are you know just really going after the schools and teachers or principals that there's a number of parents who are, are admitting to me that they are agreeing or pretending to agree with those parents that are doing that because they're too scared of those parents because their, friend, their kids are friends and they don't want things to get awkward with their children or they are gonna see their, this person when they're walking the dog in the morning and they don't want it to be uncomfortable. So they're going along with what this person is doing because of that. And I guess in the moment, you, you know, it, it, I guess in the moment, it seems understandable because you don't want to rock the boat with somebody you live next to or in the same neighborhood or is in the same friend group as your child's. But the consequence to the community is so significant because teachers feel alone and they feel like right at this point, it feels a lot to a lot of the teachers that I work with that there are some parents who can just do whatever they want, talk however they want, accuse the teachers of anything and teachers really can't do anything about it. And at the same time, on the other side, there's lots of parents who are asking them for a tremendous amount of mental health support, emotional support. So you're sort of getting it coming and going as a teacher. And I, um, and so then I look at those Facebook groups and it's, and they're, and they're, and under the guise, frankly, of like supporting each other or saying the truth about a school, what are we really doing? And I really want parents to ask themselves that question, even if they read it and they don't say anything. So 
I, I mean, in answer to your question, I think adults need to behave better. And I also want to say, because I want to honor the fact that, um, you know, there are parents who have very good, very good reasons for being very angry or frustrated at a principal or, you know, administrator, a school district, a teacher or whatever. I don't unfortunately think you can be a parent and put your child in any kind of school, private or public, and not have an experience where at some point where you feel patronized, dismissed, disrespected, your child is not being taken care of. That unfortunately is a really com too common of experience. But I still don't think that justifies the kind of behavior that I'm seeing from parents today. Mm. What would be a good thing for a parent to do instead when they feel like that? When they get angry at a teacher or yeah, school, or like school they have yeah. a bad experience. I mean, sure. Um, you know, because honestly, you know, I, you know, this is Penn and I, I was a parent in BVSD. Um, I had two kids in BVSD and I had experiences. I had an experience with an athletic director that the person was so sexist and so patronizing to me. And it was like a video of like what not to do. It was, it, was, it was like, I almost, want, I wanted a, a, you know, like a video recording so I could use it as a tutorial. <laughs> with teachers. Like, this is literally the opposite of what you want to do. And I remember sitting in that room and being so shocked at the way I was being treated and then realized, well, if I'm being treated like this, what is my child being treated like? And it also felt like um, my child was vulnerable to other adults because of this person's irresponsibility. And I remember that feeling, like that feeling of, oh my gosh, I can't trust you at all to take care of the emotional, physical welfare of my child. And when that happens to a parent, we can really get emotionally hijacked. We can really, I did, I mean, I certainly had that moment. So I think the thing in general that we have to do is when we have those moments, um, first of all, we have to pause and we have to breathe we have to, we have to trust the feeling, right? If you're sitting across the, the room, if you're sitting across from somebody and you're feeling like, is this person patronizing me? I think you should trust that. Um, but I think this is the moment where you have to really dig into what you believe. And this is what I believe. So take it for what it's worth. If you're listening is you have to treat people with dignity when it's hard. And I didn't say respect because I don't respect someone's actions when they are taking away the dignity of someone else. You know, the definition of respect is to admire someone's actions and the position they have because of it. And dignity is just inherent worth. You just get it. So I do not have to respect um, that athletic director's actions because that person was not acting in ways that was recognizing or acknowledging the dignity of me or my child. And I would say the same to any, any parent. You don't have to respect the actions of someone who is taking away your dignity or a child's dignity. And that includes safety and identity and, um, and inclusion, all of those things. But I do think that they need to be treated, they do need to be treated with dignity as much as you might not want to. And what that looks like, I have found, is that when we take a pause and we come from a place of dignity instead of having to show respect, that we're able to be present in a very different way. And we're able to articulate what we need and what our boundaries are in a much, much different way. And it does not become a power struggle between you and the other person. So, um, so in that moment, for example, when you're with somebody that you think is being, you know, 
talk is disregarding the safety of your child, disregarding the, the feelings of your child or that you have, I would name it. I would say, you know, I have to tell you that the way in which you're coming across is really making me feel like you're not acknowledging the safety concerns I have for my child or that you're not treating me with dignity. You're not treating me or my child with the belief that they have the right to be here and feel that they belong here. And I'd like to know what steps you can take to be able to make that happen. And if you can't, if the person is incapable of having that meeting and treating you like that, then I think you say, I'm going to end this meeting now. And um, we can either read, you know, we can either reschedule a meeting at such time when you can treat me with dignity and you can listen and acknowledge the concerns I have, or we can meet with other people. Um, I do think that parents, when they're in that situation, either try and power over the person or they try and give that person so many facts of why the parent is right that they just, the person would capitulate and say, okay, you're right, you're right, you're right. And that is not the experience I have with most schools. But with most schools, when parents try and slam information into a school or you know, just so many facts and so many this and so many that is that the school, the person shuts down and they're gonna get you on it. They're gonna sort of blow you off. So I think it's actually opposite. Um, and they probably now, especially, you know, it could be that they've been listening to screaming parents all day and have just lost their ability to even have a conversation at this point when you're having it with them. Yeah. So some empathy for where. Yeah. yeah. Empathy, definitely, definitely sympathy. And, um, and, but it also at the same time, you know, we don't just because somebody has a bad day doesn't mean they have, they don't have to take care of your kid in a school because that's their responsibility. So you can say to them, if this is too difficult of a time right now, or you've had too difficult of a day, then let's reschedule. Um, because honestly, teachers are, I mean, I've never, I, this is, I've been in education for 25 years. And I think I speak for most people in education when we say last year was not the hardest year. This year is the hardest year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you would say that because things are coming back around because, the way because, of, because of the way that adults are treating each other. Mm-hmm. Well, and everything you're saying is so important from the standpoint of these are the examples that we're leaving for our children. And I've always been a believer that having those conversations then with your child about something that happened to you, like I had to have this conversation with a principal today. And it was really uncomfortable because I felt like he was being very disrespectful. And this is how I handled it gives them those that the language, like you said, the ability to have the the same kind of conversation when they're faced with situations that may be on the playground or out at a party with a friend or in numerous situations that they have that same language and ability and they can learn through those experiences. Yes, exactly. And I would say I would change the, I don't, I don't think you were me. I want to be very clear with parents about this is that this role modeling is happening right now. It's not right. Like our kids are, you know, it's really important. What we know is that kids can see a lot of crazy adult behavior, but if they do have one close relationship with an adult, that's calm and consistent, that really makes all the difference. So it's not like there's no hope when we see our kids see, you know, coaches screaming at kids or parents screaming at, you know, in sports events or teachers not doing, you know, their job or principals not doing their job or whatever it is, or parents screaming at school board meetings or screaming in school PT meetings or screaming, you know, just, you know, or being really, really or texting nasty things to each other. 
or emailing nasty things to each other. I have seen more written nasty communication. I've been doing this work for a long time. I've probably seen more nasty, nasty uh, written communication from uh, parents to other parents and parents to administrators than I've like seen collectively in like 20 years of work, all of the time of work. Um, but the good news is, thank goodness, is that if our kids have one adult who is calm and consistent, they tend to look at that person as like, as, you know, sort of the, the life raft in a sea, in the, you know, in a storming sea. And so they're like, they go to those people and that's, a, and to be that person as a parent, your, you know, your own child or other people is incredibly important for kids. I love what you're saying because the research has been saying this for a long time, that having one supportive adult in your life is a very, very important part of it, but you're giving some specific details of what it looks like to be that supportive adult. Mm -hmm. And it's more than just what we might consider typical support is yeah. what I hear from what you're saying. Oh yeah. oh yeah. I mean, I will tell you my, um, and I, you know, these relationships, cause we live in a, you know, relatively small community. And I, one of the wonderful thing I, I feel like one of the wonderful things about being a mom really, truly one of the wonderful things is having relationships with your children's friends as you watch them grow up and, you know, you know them for better and for worse. And um, both of my, I have a freshman now, he graduated from Fairview last year. And then I had one that went to Boulder for two years and then went to boarding school back East. Um, and I am still like, you know, I get texts from these boys, friends of, um, and I, you know, I just care for them so much. And I also will completely nag them about things. Like one of them is doing something that I do not approve of. And he's going to get a text from me in, a, in an hour saying that I do not approve of this thing that I have found out that he's doing. <laughs> <laughs> so great. Yeah, actually, I'm really looking forward to the conversation. I can't wait to hear the rationalizations of why this is a good decision. But I mean, but all, I mean, really, like, it's such a pleasure to watch these children grow up and, um, and to be in relationship with them is just, it's just, you know, not just your own children, but their friends. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's practice for them to, to feel like they have somebody that they can talk to and to um, bounce things off of another trusted person of what they're doing in their world without feeling like they're just going to get hammered too hard, <laughs> especially yeah. when you have the relationship. I mean, I think that's an important piece that you just said is someone else could say that and that that child wouldn't listen to it the same way. <laughs> yes, exactly. One of the things that I love about the, the title of what you do, Cultures of Dignity, is that it's, it's about building community and building a sense of, of an actual culture around the way we treat people. And I'm wondering if you can share just a little bit more about that, about what, what does it mean to have a culture of dignity in your home, in a school? Mm, well, um. You know, it's it, it, first of all, I think the most important, I think that one of the most important things is to remember that it's messy, that, um, you know, it sounds, it is very um, aspirational, like a culture of dignity that we're constant, we're constantly and always um, recognizing, acknowledging each other's worth. And that's not the way it goes. It's, I think a, a better way that I think about it is that we are constantly we have the principle that guides our thoughts and our actions to recognize and acknowledge people's worth as a given. And with that as the principle that's guiding us, 
that it it's really the guardrails for how we're going to behave and um, and keeps us like on a course of being strong and steady. And um, and so that's what that's the way I look at it. I know as a mom, you know, there were times when I was completely, I completely got emotionally hijacked, you know, with my children, it got meaning I got so angry at them that I, you know, was, as my mother would say, beside myself. And, um, you know, I screamed and yelled and got super angry, said the snarky things, you know, ways in which I would not be proud of as a parent. And, but how do you repair? And I think that having the principle of a culture of dignity in your home is that when, for example, when you make a mistake like that, um, that you are able front and center to say, to, to, you know, somewhat quickly go back into the relationship and recognize that relationships have those, those moments, those really bumpy moments where we aren't the people that we aspire to be. And that we want our children to be when they grow up. And so when we have this as a principle, it enables us to go back and say to them, for example, um, you know, I just really snapped at you and, or I assumed something about you, or I, um, I didn't listen to you. I just told myself a story um, and I need to apologize. And I think I'm ready to listen now. And in a culture of dignity, listening is being prepared to be changed by what you hear. And so if, if you are ready, um, that you say to your child, I am ready now, which doesn't mean you have to agree. It just means that you have to be ready. And um, I think doing that, instead of having, for example, a family where power is the dominating uh, dynamic of the relationships between people, or so that parents are powering over children, or the other is true. I've seen, you know, I certainly have seen children in families in Boulder where the opposite is true, where children have a lot more power than parents do. So um, it's really this feeling of the worth of people is sacred. And I'm gonna, um, and that includes myself, right? So if my kid loses their temper and cusses me out because they had a horrible, whatever the reasons are, um, that's not okay, right? It's not okay. And, um, and so to be able to say, I know you're upset, but you can't treat me like this, right? Like as your mom, you actually, you, you can't treat anybody like this, but in my relationship with you, I, I can't have this. And that's a really important thing for us to stand up for. Yeah. And, and it really acknowledges their wisdom and their knowledge, their ability to contribute to the conversation. Um, Absolutely. And, and in schools, how would you describe how that looks like in schools? What, is, what does that look like? It looks like where, well, there's so many different ways, but basically I have come to, especially after the last two years, that what we call social emotional learning is really about having teachable moments for educators when they are in their role as you know in the classroom or in the hallway or in recess or whatever in the you know in the in the office that there's a sense that there are teachable that we've agreed on teachable moments of for example what happens in a classroom when something runs off the rails which it inevitably will i mean it has to it's a school it's a lot of people and it's a lot of people who are going through extraordinarily extraordinary development in their lives so for example if it's elementary school and you have a child who you know for whatever reason is riled up or upset or something after they come back from recess 
there's a pretty common thing that teachers will say, which is leave it outside. But kids can't leave it outside. Um, they actually have to transition. They have to be able to process the feelings that they're having. And they have to be able to be given that space and allowance to be able to do that. They, it's setting them up for failure when we say leave it outside because they're gonna come in and they're gonna be distracting or distracting the other kids or running, running or whatever it is. And then they're gonna get in trouble. And that's not, that's not fair <laughs> because they're literally doing what their bodies and brains only can do. And so, um, so the teachable moment, for example, like in elementary school, can we all agree that we're not going to say something like that again, that we're not going to say, leave it outside, that we're going to, as a faculty, we're going to agree based on what we know about young people's development, their brain and body development, what are the things that we need to do? And, that, and then also give teachers the autonomy to say like, all right, what's the process in my classroom based on the principles that we've agreed on as faculty? How is it going to look in my classroom? Because teachers need to have some, they need, they need and deserve to have some autonomy to teach in their classrooms as they see fit. So like that's one for elementary school. Another would be in middle school, you know, what happens if you have kids that are in eighth grade and want, and a child cannot, um, just keep them like has to talk to their friends during fourth period math class and you can't just like how are you going to move the kids like how like it's you know if you decide that you need to move them the actual process and strategy that you do has to be based on how you are an ethical authority figure and how do you do that in a way that connects you to the student more even if they're mad at you for separating them um, how do you come across as an ethical authority figure and what's the common language that adults are going to agree with instead of, you know, sometimes we get snappy and, you know, they're dealing with eighth graders all day, for goodness sakes. So if we can agree on a common language and a common strategy, then it helps everybody be able to have teachable moments um, to show that we treat each other with dignity when social dynamics are hard. And that is actually important social emotional learning. Um, and it's under that foundation that we can do more explicit programs and more, more explicit things like what do friendships look like to you? What do boundaries look like to you? How do you establish healthy friendships? How do you go to an adult for help? You know, all of those things that we want in social emotional learning that are more like a class-like or more content-driven have to be on a foundation of these teachable moments or else it, they don't mean anything to the kids. Yeah. It really gets to the fact that we may have a lot of evidence-based programs or a lot of knowledge around social emotional learning, but it's very unique and individualized for the classroom, the, the age of the child, the teacher's style, so many different things. Yeah, I mean, I think we all can agree that, for example, a teachable moment, all teachers are going to deal with a kid who says something nasty to another kid about their identity in some way. That's just part of teaching. And you need to know what the strategy is. Like faculty needs to be, have a united front, united language about what they're gonna do when that happens. And there is no teacher that hasn't had that happen, to, right? So that's a teachable moment that everybody can relate to. Um, another teachable moment is if you're gonna put kids in groups to learn, they're gonna be social dynamics in those groups. So teachers have to, as a they should be having a common language and common strategy about how they teach, regardless of content area, okay, you're about to be put into a group to learn. Here's my expectations for what happens with social dynamics, you know, when we're in a group to learn and here's what's gonna happen. Here's the protocol I want you to follow if things are not working well. So 
that's the again, just that's the kind of stuff that everybody needs and people can see like oh that's actually helpful to me in my day-to-day life at school right and it's part of the everyday movement throughout the classroom or the home it's not something that you just kind of weave into as part of a curriculum mm-hmm. yeah. so it's really exciting to hear about your new book and we were talking a little bit before we started um, but i'd love to hear more about where your career is going and what this book involves and what people can expect Well, thanks. Um, Well, um, I am. (laughs) So many, many years ago, like many years ago, I met a woman named Shantara McBride, and we worked together for about five or six years. And, um, and we've always off and on worked together, consulted with each other, um, spoke, spoken together. She was a vice principal at a large high school for a while and I, I spoke at her school because of it. Um, so we've always been in each other's lives as friends and as colleagues. She's also a um, preacher for the United Methodist Church and a youth preacher in particular um, for Arkansas, Texas and Oklahoma. And she grew up in Dallas, Texas and we've been working on equity and um, race issues forever forever. Um, I mean, Queen Bees has a lot, you know, has, you know, I was talking about that 20, 20 years ago. So uh, we did a webinar last summer where we had about a thousand people come and we decided that we needed to write a book that put in all the 20 questions, sort of the most common questions that people have asked us over the years about diversity and racism and um, race and all and difference and things like that. And so we wrote a book called Courageous Discomfort, How to Have Brave Life-Changing Conversations About Race and Racism. And it comes out in August. And I, you know, I mean, we could talk about this for a long time, but um, suffice to say that we knew that it was important when we wrote it, but neither of us had any idea about how head spinning race and racism and speaking out about these issues and having to defend how important they are for all of us, regardless of our race. We had no idea how this would be under fire. And so our book will come out in a time when, you know, people are actively fighting these kinds of efforts. So our hope is, is that we can contribute to the effort of people feeling more comfortable standing up for inclusivity, equity, um, and honest, and honest, transparent ways. That's exciting. I can't wait. One of the questions I like to ask a lot of people that I interview, and it's a simple question, and you've alluded to it several times throughout our conversation, but in a succinct way, I think parents sometimes find themselves in this predicament where, you know, they're struggling to do the right thing. They want to be a good parent. They, they may or may not have, have gotten to that place where they realize there's no perfect parent, but Uh they really want to show up and they really want to be present and maybe don't know how to do it. How can a parent best show up for their child? Gosh, I mean, that's so much pressure. Um, (laughs) Right. I mean, I think, what comes to mind for me is how you show anger and how you show love. Mm-hmm. That's really what it comes down to, I think, for me. Um, I think that um, that oftentimes we all carry the coping skills that we developed and maybe served us when we were younger, but don't as parents. 
don't as we become older and away from our family of origin. I think it's really important to ask yourself, what were the lessons my family and my community taught me about love and anger that serve me? And what are the ones that don't? And I think that's important overall in life. And then I think parenting is an extension of that. Well, is there anything else that you want to leave people with today? Ooh, well, I think, well, there's two things. I, I really want parents to hear me that I, I really believe so much. I mean, I've worked so hard to be able to hear parents and parents, parents have the right you know, to express themselves. And if they're upset about something that's going on in school or with their child, you know, they have obviously, like it's important for them to share with the school what's happening. Um, and, you know, I really, you know, it's really important to me that when I talk about the things about the problems that teachers and administrators are having, that it doesn't take away from the real experiences that parents and children may be having with less competent teachers or less competent principals or, you know, schools can be really, really difficult. I mean, education as a system, as an institution, one of the ironies of, of the educational system is that it really doesn't like to learn. And um, I mean, you said something a, a while ago that I think bears right now, which is that, you know, we've known what works in schools for a very long time. And yet we really, don't do it. Like, for example, we teach civics for the most part in ninth grade. Why? There's no point in teaching civics to ninth grade people because they don't really, they can't, if, if my feedback from young people is they want it in junior year and senior year when like voting is around the corner for them. But we won't, we often do things that are better for the school system than is in the best interest of the child. That's, that's really I mean, what it comes down to is that often the educational system, because it is a system, will do things for the benefit of the system instead of the child. So when that happens to you as a parent, that's awful. And um, at the same time, without taking away from that, I really want parents to understand that, that teachers and educators are feeling beat up. And they are being spoken to in ways by some parents that is mind-blowingly rude mm -hmm. and aggressive and hurtful and going after their integrity and their competency and every teacher I'm working with right now personally is juggling four different kinds of jobs at a school and every minute that they have is like precious because they're constantly going from meeting to meeting to meeting and at the same time that they're teaching kids and kids are really dysregulated right now and having a hard time themselves and yet and they are getting screamed at or not getting the benefit of the doubt from some parents so if you're listening to this and you're not one of those parents I really actually want you to assume that the teachers that you interact with are somehow dealing with somebody like that, but they're not telling you. And so the more support you can give them, the ones that you think are competent, the ones that you think are trying their best, the ones that are being proactive and reactive to the situations that we have in schools, the more you can be openly supportive of those people, the better. Thank you. This has been a great conversation. I think that we could talk for hours. <laughs> it's very interesting. And I think it's very timely given just so much going on in the world right now. I know that people can go to your website, culturesofdignity.com to get a hold of you. Are there other ways that you want to share that people can, can go to to reach out to you? 
Well, I think that's good. I mean, we've got our, you know, our, so our Instagram at cultures of dignity and LinkedIn and, you know, cultures of dignity. Um, but our website is definitely um, the place to get our information. And we just, excuse me, posted a wonderful article by one of our teen advisors about um, high expectations that mm. I think is, I think is wonderful, but I am very biased. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Out of the mouths of babies though, right? If we want right, to learn, exactly. that is a good right. place to start. Yeah. And, and I will say that I've seen many webinars and getting on the listserv so that you can be in communication about what's coming out of Cultures of Dignity is a good idea as well. So I would encourage people to, to go on there and, and just, you know, stay informed and get educated and be in the conversation of how you can integrate dignity into your life and the lives of the people you care about. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We have, we always have webinars coming up for teachers, for parents, for kids. Yeah, we all, we have a lot of them. Great. Well, thank you so much again. Thanks for being here. Thanks for sharing your, your experience and your wisdom with families and caretakers, people who are working with children. It's been very valuable. Oh, thanks. Thank you so much. So before we go, I do just want to thank our sponsors. We're so fortunate at the Parent Engagement Network to have some people that have stuck by us through the years. We have Premier Members Credit Union, Sartell Bliss and Coldwell Bankers, the Hope Coalition of Boulder County, and Zia Consulting, which is a software company. Please check out what's going on this year with the Parent Engagement Network. You can do that just by going to our website, which is www.penbv.org. And if today's conversation inspired you, please share our podcast with others. Uh, please check out the other work we're doing. And if you would like to donate or you're inspired to be a sponsor, there are opportunities on our website to do that as well. So I hope that today's conversation has certainly added to your parenting well, and that the information and the insights that have been shared here today will help you in your journey of raising happy, healthy kids. So it was a pleasure to have you and until next time, happy parenting.